We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Acts 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many conceiving, uh, convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back into the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks Please take your seats. Let's all pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we come to you this morning um, with burdens that are too big for us. And especially as we consider the horrific tragedy in Buffalo, New York, how a gunman with racist motivations shot down over 11 people. Uh, Lord, our hearts are heavy. And some of us are wondering how a God who exists, a God who is good, could allow this to happen. Some of us are wondering how you can possibly speak into such unspeakable evil. And Lord, all of us come desperate for you. We need you. And so we pray that you would speak to us through your word and through the power of your spirit. Lord, that you would help me to get out of the way so that all of us can hear you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and we are still talking about the resurrection. It's a month from Easter. And we're working our way through this series called Encountering the Risen Jesus. And in this series, we've been talking about how the resurrection is not just something that you believe or that you accept intellectually, but it's something that continually changes 
your life, that when you encounter Jesus, it changes everything. And so we saw how the resurrection, um, how the resurrection takes away your fear. Uh, we, we saw that two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at how the, the, the resurrection, the risen Jesus, speaks to your doubt. And this morning, we're going to look at how the risen Jesus speaks to our understanding of power. And so I had a completely different introduction for this sermon that I uh, just had to rewrite this morning when I read the details. I saw the headlines yesterday as the news was breaking but didn't really look. And this morning when I read this story about this 18-year-old gunman wearing tactical gear and body armor who shot 13 people at a Disney grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood in the east side of Buffalo, uh, and how later that day he released a 120-page document detailing the racist ideology. I won't even name the ideology that he referenced, but this racist ideology that, was, that drove him to commit this horrific act of terrorism, I just knew, on a sermon about power, um, we needed to hear what God had to say about power. Terrorism is meant to intimidate. And in this case, this shooter meant to intimidate not just the people in that grocery store, but the entire black community in Buffalo, New York. And in fact, he meant to intimidate black people throughout all of the United States. And the tragic irony of this massacre is that this 18-year-old young man the man with the gun felt threatened by regular folks going about their business on a busy Saturday afternoon trying to get their chores done. People like Ruth Whitfield, an 88-year-old grandmother who sings in the choir. He could not feel powerful unless he could make others feel powerless. And perhaps the most disturbing thing about this massacre is that actually, if we try, we can all relate to that, because that's how power works in the world. We act as if the only way to feel powerful is if there are others who feel less powerful or even powerless. Like power is this limited resource that cannot be shared but needs to be taken. And so in today's passage, Jesus shows us a different kind of power. It's more powerful than racial supremacy. It's more powerful than bullets. It's more powerful even than death. And it's not only more powerful, it's more hopeful. So we're going to look at three things as we unpack this passage, as the disciples encounter the risen Jesus, and Jesus promises that to give them power. We're going to look at three things. Number one, we're going to look at how power is received, not taken. Number two, we're going to look at how Jesus offers a power that is for others and not ourselves. And number three, we're going to look at how Jesus offers us a power that never fails, even when all else fails. So let's look at the first point here. Jesus offers us a power that is received, not taken. What does that mean? 
Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, if you look at the passage, this passage at the beginning of Acts picks up where the Gospel of Luke ended. Uh, Both books are written by Luke, a physician uh, who recorded a careful account of the life of Jesus for his friend Theophilus. And uh, at the end of Luke, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he spends 40 days teaching his disciples, and Luke details what that looked like for us in the book of Acts. During these 40 days, Jesus gave many convincing proofs to his disciples that he was alive. And so if you were here last Sunday and you, you heard how the, the risen Christ speaks to our doubt, that he invites doubt and welcomes doubt, that, that doubt is part of faith, not a, something that we have in place of faith, you see that here at, here at play with the disciples. They, they were witnessing the risen Christ and still they needed convincing proof after convincing proof that Jesus was alive during this 40-day period. And then Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. And, and you could sense in the narrative that the disciples are changing, their demeanor is changing, the mood is changing in this incredible Bible study that they're having with Jesus. When Jesus died, the disciples were dejected. They scattered, and then they went into hiding. They were afraid for their lives. But as Jesus proved that he had risen from the dead, they began to dream about what would come next. And Jesus, he must have sensed this. He must have sensed the electricity running through the room, and he told them the next step was to wait. He said, wait, wait. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He was talking about the Pentecost, 10 days after this passage, Jesus would send the Holy Spirit, which would be poured down on the church, and it would fill every Christian that was gathered for worship. The power of the Holy Spirit is a completely different kind of power than any other power we've seen. In Jesus' words, in verse 3, it is a gift promised by the Father. You don't earn gifts. You just receive them. You don't take gifts. You wait for them. And that's actually very hard to do, especially when you feel powerless. Listen to what the disciples say in verse 6 as they respond to Jesus' command to wait. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? People of Israel at this time were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They were facing real suffering, real injustice, real violence, real inequity, real suffering. So this question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? This is not a question being asked by power-hungry people. It's actually a question that is being asked by powerless people. This is not a political lobbyist asking for favor at Congress. This is Ukrainians praying that Russian soldiers will leave their country. This is a cry of the powerless. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? How could anything matter more than the restoration of the kingdom of Israel? Do you know what that's like? 
Do you know what it's like to be powerless and asking God for relief, for restoration, and feeling like all you get is silence? Do you know what it's like to be powerless and hearing God say, wait? Have you ever asked God, when? When are you going to restore my life? When are you going to restore me from depression? When are you going to restore me from my chronic illness? When are you going to restore me from my unending debt and financial need? When are you going to restore me from this difficult marriage? When are you going to restore me from this difficult divorce? When are you going to restore me? When are you going to restore my city? When are you going to restore my nation? When will the racial violence end? When you're powerless, it's hard to hear the words wait. But the thing is, what Jesus is showing us is that the power that God has for us is altogether different from the power that we experience in the world. It is not the kind of power that you have and others don't. You see, the only way to receive power is not by taking power, but by realizing that you are powerless. The Holy Spirit doesn't help people who help themselves. The Holy Spirit helps people who know they cannot help themselves. That's how gifts work. That's how grace works. That's why Jesus, who is God incarnate, depended himself on the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that in verse 2? It says that Jesus taught through the Holy Spirit. That means that Jesus, when he taught these incredible Bible studies in this 40-day period, this incredible master class, he didn't rely on his knowledge, he didn't rely on his intelligence, he didn't rely on his skill, he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, the eternal Son of God, relied on the Holy Spirit to teach people simple truths from the Bible. He was powerless to teach except for the power of the Holy Spirit. He was wholly and completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit when it came to teaching the Bible. Notice in verse 7, Jesus says, It is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set. Well, if you look at Matthew 24 and Mark 13, we learn that actually it was not for Jesus to know either. Jesus did not know the day or time that the Father had set. He didn't know all the plans his Father had made for his life. He wholly and completely and utterly depended upon his Father. And he trusted that his Father loved him. You see, Jesus knew what it is like to be powerless. He knew what it was like to be desperate and to hear, wait, he knew what it was like to rely completely on the Holy Spirit, to rely completely on his Father. And this is what he did his entire life all the way to the cross. He did it gladly because he knew that he was loved. And here's the beautiful truth about the power of God. Power is simply an instrument of God's love. 
And when you love someone, and when you are loved someone, you are utterly dependent. You can't be independent. That is the opposite of love. Love makes you vulnerable. It makes you powerless. In the book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, we're introduced to the main character, Harry Potter, uh, in the first chapter, and he's introduced to us as the boy who lived. And what I love about this introduction to Harry is when we meet him, he's just a baby. He hasn't gone to school. He doesn't know how to cast any spells. He hasn't gone on any adventures. He hasn't fought any evil wizards. All he's done is survive. The most powerful wizard in all history came to his house, attacked his family, killed his mother and father, and Harry was the only one to survive. And this made him famous. Everyone in the wizarding world knew Harry. He was the boy who lived. And you know why Harry survived? He survived because his parents loved him more than they loved their own lives. And they actually sacrificed their lives for Harry. And when they made that sacrifice, it cast a spell that protected Harry from this evil wizard. Harry was famous, not for what he did, but for how he was loved. And this is the secret of the power of God. The way that the power of God works in our lives is he makes us dependent. He drives us to become powerless because this is the only way that we could understand that our lives are not dependent on what we do or what we take or how good we are and how much we know or how clean our life is. We can know his power only when we understand that it comes through his love and through his mercy. The power of God is a power that makes you more dependent, more powerless than you want to be, but it also makes you more loved than you could ever deserve to be. It's a power that will test your patience, but it's also a power that will set you free to serve others. This brings us to the second part that we're going to look at in this passage. Jesus gives us a power that is for others, not for ourselves. What do you do once you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? When the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, what do you do with that? Well, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the power of the Holy Spirit is not for ourselves, It is for others. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because we say a version of that all the time, that we are seeking to be a church that exists not for ourselves, but for others, for the unconvinced and for Oakland. Where does that come from? We didn't make it up. It comes from the Bible. It's woven throughout the Bible. When God gives you power, when God enters your life, when God shows you his love, it is not just for you. It's actually for others. You see, when you think about what it means to be a witness, when you become a witness, you don't do it for yourself. You witness to others. You witness for the benefit of people who were not there. You witness for the benefit of people who did not see. Last Sunday, uh, my family went to Fenton's to celebrate Mother's Day. We ran into another Rezoak family there, and we're waiting in line to get ice cream when uh, someone from... The other group 
ran over to us and told us, you can get free ice cream. There's free ice cream for mothers at Fenton's today. And, uh, and, and sure enough, it's called the Mother's Day Special. If you ask for the I didn't see it anywhere. I don't think it's advertised, but if you ask for the Mother's Day Special, and you don't even need to prove it, you just look like a mom, <laughs> you'll get a free Sunday, right? Um, you know, we would have missed out on this, but someone who witnessed this amazing deal cared about us enough to tell us about it, and I, because I care about you, am telling you about it now. <laughs> That's all witnessing is. Witnessing is sharing something that you've seen and experienced that others have not. Witnessing is not having an amazing personal story about how God has changed your life. It's not being able to answer every question that people throw at you about the existence of God or Bible knowledge. All witnessing is is being able to testify that you saw something, you experienced something that someone else didn't, and it's too good to keep to yourself. The power of witnessing is not in your intelligence or your knowledge or your personal story. It's in the Holy Spirit. So who do we witness to? Jesus gives us three categories of people to witness to. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. Uh, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And uh, a pastor that I know put it so well when he said that this, this represents people who are like you, people that you don't like, and people who are not like you. Right? People who are like you, that's Jerusalem. That's where they were. That's where they were from. That's that, where they were worshiping. Samaria. These are people that you don't like. These are people who have been enemies with the Israelites for generations. And the people who are not like you, the ends of the earth, foreign nations uh, who, are, who speak other languages and have very different customs and even different religions. And it takes a special kind of power from the Holy Spirit to witness to each of these groups of people. When you witness to Jerusalem, when you witness to people who are like you, these are people who know you really well. They're friends, they're classmates, they're co-workers, they're family, they're people with the same education, people who like the same things. And when you witness to people who are like you, it's important to remember that even though you're like them, Jesus has actually made you different. You need to remember that even though you like the same things, because Jesus has come into your life, you like them differently. Even though you do the same work, because Jesus has come into your life, you do it differently. I have a good friend who's a missionary. He served in the Philippines and Cambodia, and he likes to say, everybody likes to change the world, but nobody helps mom with the dishes. You, you, there's a version of witnessing where you have all the answers to fix other people's lives, but don't lift a finger to help anybody with their lives. And so when you are witnessing to Jerusalem, you need to remember, Jesus has made you like them, but not like them. And he calls you to serve them. And you need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. When you witness to people who you are not like, 
to the ends of the earth. You're talking about people who have a different way of thinking, people who have maybe dressed differently, talk differently, maybe even eat differently. These are people from different ethnicities, people from different sexual orientations, people from, with different educations, different jobs, who live in different neighborhoods. And in a place like Oakland, they may be people from different parts of the country or people from different parts of the world. And when you witness to people who are not like you, you need to be willing to learn their culture. That's what we're trying to do with Intro to Oakland. But you know, to, to witness to the ends of the earth, you need to be able to be willing to learn the ends of the earth. To, to be humble and open-handed and to, to recognize that people do life a little bit differently than you do. Um, they, 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 they do money differently than they do. They talk about politics differently than, they, than you do. They do family differently than you do. To witness to people who are not like you, you need to be willing to learn. You need to be sensitive to the high probability that they don't understand you and you don't understand them. And so you need to step outside of your comfort zone to understand. The last group of people here, the, the Samaritan, Samaria, Samaritans, Samaria, it's the hardest group of people to witness to. These are people that you don't like. In his book, Reading While Black, Dr. Esau McCulley shows us how the Bible speaks to things like black anger when it is triggered by injustice and racism. He talks about how important it is to acknowledge racism and, the, and how the Bible actually gives us language for our anger language for our sorrow, language for our despair. The book of Habakkuk opens this way. It says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? That's in the Bible. God gives us language to name the deep brokenness that makes it hard for us to love certain people, people who have hurt us, people who have done unspeakable evil. And in that chapter, Macaulay goes on to talk about the immense resources for forgiveness that we have in the resurrection. Listen to what he writes. Without the resurrection, the forgiveness embedded in the cross is the wistful dream of a pious fool but I am convinced that the Messiah has defeated death. I can forgive my enemies because I believe the resurrection happened. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that we don't need to forgive people because it's the thing that nice Christians do. We need to forgive people because Christ is risen from the grave, which means that forgiveness is woven into the fabric of the universe. This is how the world works. This is how the universe is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a playground of forgiveness where enemies can become brothers and sisters. The power of God sends you down, not up. It brings you beneath your enemies, not on top of them. The power of God sends you out, not in. 
It sends you to people who are not like you, people that it, where it might be awkward and uncomfortable to spend time with them, where, where, where relationships and conversations are filled with misunderstanding. The gospel sends you upside down, not right side up. So even when you are with people who are just like you, there is something different about you. All this is easier said than done. So why? Why bother with witnessing? This brings us to our last point that we're going to look at. Jesus offers us a power that never fails, even when all else fails. After Jesus said all of this, he ascended into heaven. And the disciples were completely thrown off. They, they lingered staring into the sky, and two angels had to come alongside them to snap them out of it. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking at the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. After 40 incredible days of studying the Bible and being with Jesus, the disciples were disoriented. They felt defeated. They felt demoralized. And so they zoned out. They stared into the sky. They couldn't move. But the angels reminded them of something glorious, a hope that would not fail. The angels reminded them that Jesus hasn't really gone anywhere. He's coming back and he's sending his spirit, and you're not going to be alone. When you read the parallel passage in Luke chapter 24, uh, something incredible happens right after this, right after Jesus ascends into, the hev- into heaven, the disciples return to Jerusalem, and Luke says that they return with great joy, continually blessing God in the temple. One moment they're staring into the sky bewildered, next moment they're filled with joy. What happened? Well, they worshiped their way out of their disbelief. They worshiped their way out of their doubts. See, every, every single one of us is empowered by the things that we worship. If you worship money, you will feel empowered when you have money, and you will feel worthless when you don't. If you worship power, you will feel empowered when you have control, and you will feel powerless when you don't. If you worship beauty, you will feel empowered when people admire you, and you will feel worthless when they don't. If you worship racial supremacy, you will feel empowered when you put others down, but it will not last because it is based on a lie from hell. When you worship Jesus, you have access to a power that will never fail even when all else fails, because Jesus loves you and his love will never fail. If you are here and you're figuring out what you believe, you don't yet identify as a Christian, I want to say, as we always do every Sunday, that we are so glad that you are here. And this is a great place to ask questions, to, to, to articulate your doubts, and Brent and I would love to meet you for coffee uh, to to talk about some of the questions that you have. But I want to challenge you to not only take your questions seriously, but to even take your emotions seriously. Do you ever feel moved 
when you come to church? Do you ever feel moved by the music or by a Bible reading or an idea, maybe just an idea that was presented in a sermon? It can be very tempting to resist that feeling, but if you do, you might miss an emotional truth that your head has not caught up to yet. You see, the beautiful thing about worship is that it engages the whole person, mind and heart. And when the disciples worship God, they worship their way out of their doubts. Jesus died and rose again for Jerusalem, for Samaria, and for the ends of the earth. And that's just another way of saying that he died and rose again for you. Because Jesus is like you. He knows everything about you. There is nothing that you have experienced that he is unfamiliar with. Jesus also is unlike you. He is holy. Every single one of us is broken. And Jesus has every reason to not like you because every single one of us has fallen short of God's glory. We've made a mess of our lives and we cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot save ourselves. And yet Jesus chooses to love you and forgive you and accept you instead of destroying you. His love will never fail. There's this beautiful scene at the end of the book, Pilgrim's Progress. The main character is named Christian, and it's about his journey to the celestial city. And Christian is finally passed through the river of death and approaches the gate of heaven when he sees shining people waiting to greet him. And Christian asks, what must we do in that place, that holy place? And the shining people answer, you must there receive the comfort of all your toil and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and sufferings for the king, by the way. In that place, you must wear a crown of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and visions of the Holy One, for there you shall see him as he is. The word must is a powerful word. I must get good grades. I must go to college. I must work harder. I must succeed. I must have other people's approval. I must protect myself from other people getting too close. I must prove that my race is superior to all others. But in the kingdom of God, when the power of God comes on you, the only thing you must do is to receive the love of God that is in Jesus. Then you must receive comfort of all your toil. You must have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap all that you have sown, even the fruit of all your tears and prayers and sufferings by the way for the king. You must wear a crown of gold and you must see God as he is. That's what this table represents. It's, the, it's a foretaste. This table is a foretaste of the one thing Every single one of us most needs, 
And the only thing that we must do if Jesus is our Savior. We must feast on the grace of God. We must have our fill. We must find deep satisfaction in Jesus. And we must receive the unconditional and unyielding love of God. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess it is hard to wait, hard to wait on you when we see so much trouble around us and so much trouble inside of us. But God, we thank you that you offer us grace that will never fail, and the proof of it is here at this table. And so, God, we pray that you would engage our hearts, that you would engage our minds, and that you would bring faith where there is no faith, that you would bring strength where we feel nothing but weakness, and that you would show us your goodness even when around us all we seem to feel is the weight of evil. God, we pray comfort for all who are suffering in Buffalo. We pray comfort for all who are suffering here in this room. And we ask this, that Jesus would be magnified. Amen.